Thank you very much for inviting me uh, here this afternoon, and, and thank you for the two introductions, uh, by both of which, uh, by Andrew Gamble and, and Michael Candia, I found fascinating. What I thought I'd just try to do to set the scene in a response from a politician is just give you a first thoughts for a moment on Brexit, the referendum itself. Not because I want to go over old ground, but I want to try to identify what my own thoughts were about what was happening around me and then to look at the politics and consequences of what has happened. Um, for me, it's always nice when a politician can say, um, I knew this was going to happen. It would be wrong to say, I knew that we were going to lose the Brexit referendum as a Remainer, but it has to be said that I went into polling day with a very strong sense uh, that it was on a knife edge which was not necessarily to our advantage. And the eye-opening moment for me was when, in May, I'd gone down to Clovelly in Devon to give a lecture on the British Constitution, which was sponsored by a philanthropical family of landowners. And at the dinner afterwards, attended by about 80 people, it was, I suppose, the nomenclatura of North Devon, uh, landowners, uh, farmers, local businessmen with a wide range of business interests in haulage, um, uh, agricultural-related products, shipbuilding, including just down the road, the building of two patrol vessels, interestingly enough, for the Irish Navy, which was the one thing which was keeping this particular shipyard afloat. Uh, a mixture of retired merchant bankers with toy estates in Devon and some academics. And admittedly, this group was largely over the age of 50, but it's probably right to say that it became clear during the course of the evening and the very interesting discussion, which moved away from the British Constitution inevitably and went entirely to Brexit, that about 80% of them were going to vote to leave. So when one talks about why this referendum was lost by the government, focuses sometimes on the disintegration of Labour Party support in northern towns amongst their previous industrial supporters working in industry and the rise of UKIP. But I have to say, to me, and I picked this up on many other occasions during the course of the campaign, this was the revolt of Middle England, of which we might add Middle Wales because the Welsh administration discovered to its horror that, in fact, Middle Wales is no different from Middle England in its attitudes, unless you live in the Welsh-speaking counties in the far west of the Principality. And, of course, it's also worth bearing in mind when we talk, and we touched on this with Scotland, that while Scotland voted differently, 38% of this country, which is supposed to be monolithically different from the rest of the United Kingdom, consisting in large measure of SNP supporters, as well as Conservatives, who only make up about 20%, <coughs> voted to go as well. So a sort of bit of middle Scotland which shared the views of middle England. Why did they do this? Well, we've made a great focus on immigration. And immigration, I think, in a real way for some people, particularly in some rural areas of England and in some of the cities, has been a catalyst about loss of control. But I have to say that on the whole, whilst people may be reluctant to talk about immigration, I think they were being truthful when they talked about loss of control 
in a wider way, echoing everything we heard from Michael about the attitudes of the early 1960s. Indeed, one of the really rather amusing things was when I looked at the map on the day after of who'd voted how, you could almost have juxtaposed it with a few tweaks on the differences in England in the middle of the 17th century between Cavaliers and Roundheads. What were the drivers? Well, they had a very dim view of European institutions, and bluntly, I have to say, you could argue for rather good reasons. Mr. Juncker was a disaster, let's face it, when it came to uh, giving a PR operation on behalf of the union's ad uh, administration. They had a dim view of political elites. And I think that's a much wider and deeper issue than the referendum campaign itself. There's anything which it seems to me to have marked out my period in politics. It's the growing estrangement between the electorate and political elites, the electorate feeling they're just being soft-soaked and manipulated by presentational politics. You could blame Mr Blair, but I have to say it's something which we seem to be incapable of getting ourselves out of. And, of course, that highlighted one of the really major problems that David Cameron had. Because on the face of it, he, along with many other members of the political elite, had been consistent of more political parties, had been blaming or rubbishing the European Union for a long and consistent period in echo of the media as to it being useless, or at least fatally flawed. So when he turned round, came back with actually rather a remarkable package of concessions uh, and said that he thought that this addressed many of the issues and he would now like to encourage people to remain because it was in the national interest. That was simply disregarded. And of course the consequences, because we've been asked to talk about consequences, have been revolutionary. This is the biggest event since the glorious revolution of 1688. I, have, I, I think that to compare it with the referendum that took us in is to miss the point. This was an expression of opinion, albeit by 72% of the electorate, but on a clear majority of 1,200,000, that the existing order was to be overturned. That 40, 50 years of consistent United Kingdom foreign policy was to be abandoned, or at least totally transformed, and that against the background of an even longer historical period where the United Kingdom has been absolutely at the heart of international engagement. We are, I think it's right to say, the biggest treaty-making power in world history. Over 13,000 treaties that we've signed up to since 1834, many of them with arbitral mechanisms for resolving disputes. In that sense, no different from the EU, except, I suppose, on the, on the principles of direct effect of EU law. And I have no doubt that that had a big bearing on people's attitudes to the EU as well. Even though with most of the other treaties, if we have a finding against us, we have sometimes to change our laws or do something about it. And that, I think, is the conundrum. Because the revolution immediately claimed its casualties. The Prime Minister was gone in minutes. With it went his entire administration and, indeed, the policy pursued by a Conservative government in coalition or after, which had been consistent since 2010, 
about trying to promote the economic revival of the UK through some tough austerity measures, which you can dispute as to their efficacy, but actually appeared, from the government's point of view, to be bearing fruit and to offer the prospect of real sustained economic growth in the future. In five minutes, the six years of effort that had been put into doing that were blown to smithereens and have not reappeared and show no sign of reappearing any time soon. Indeed, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer is being compelled to pursue a totally different approach. So the government went and the Conservative Party then did what it's actually quite good at, which was perceiving that there was an almighty crisis. It proceeded to shortcut the selection of a new leader, to ritually disembowel some of its members who were seen to have behaved in a way that was regarded as dishonourable during the course of the campaign, whilst leaving others, they can sort of recover from their disembowelment, but they are temporarily disemboweled, and to close down the debate process that would have surrounded a new leadership contender and to emerge with an acceptable prime minister. And it was a very successful thing to do. It stabilised the party. It stabilised the government. People who went away in early August may have been surprised to note just how stable everything appeared right through until September. But of course, it doesn't get away from the basic and fundamental problem that this in desire for a revolutionary change has been demanded of a government which, in good Conservative fashion, main priorities are and always have been the defence of the realm, the individual security of the citizen, the economic well-being of the nation and the quality of life of its citizens. And the demand that's been made is at least arguably incompatible with those key drivers which normally animate a Conservative government. Because if you're a true revolutionary, you will be entirely focused on the single objective you want, which is leaving the EU, and everything else will collapse to one side. But we don't have revolutionary government in this country, thank goodness, and therefore it's rather difficult to see how the government can go about responding to what has been required of them. And that, I think, highlights what's happened since. The government has to hold the party together. If the government can't hold the party together, it can't govern. I know we have the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, but with a majority of 12, there is a serious danger that the government could simply descend into complete inadequacy of being unable to take policy forward. So when one watches what the Prime Minister says, and the very coded language as she plays her cards very close to her chest, one can watch the inevitable tacking and weaving that goes on to try to ensure that as broad a coalition can be maintained, because all political parties are coalitions of interest, they are all held together by ties of loyalty and affection much more than over policy. But of course, ties of loyalty and affection do get placed under rather a lot of strain when you open you listen to your radio in the morning and you hear colleagues saying things which you either think are complete lies or alternatively engaging in personalised attacks on other members of the same political party. You can also see 
But fundamentally, the party, it's very difficult to do an analysis, but is likely to be split into three groups. There are those who actively campaign for Remain and believe that whatever the shortcomings of at the EU, we should stay in it. There are some ardent Brexiters who are longing for a solution which takes us clear out of the EU and would really like a World Trade Organization relationship and are mounting a, a campaign which, of course, has great clarity and simplicity because the easiest way to leave the EU is to go for a WTO relationship because there's nothing else to negotiate. You just go. And then there's a whole broad centre who, in good conservative pragmatic fashion, may well have been Remainers but are perfectly prepared for leave if and follow the leadership of the Prime Minister and, in a good pragmatic way, want to do the best they can for their country. And that's the internal tension that is being played out. You have the party conference, and then two days into the following week, the Labour opposition put down a motion in Parliament of a very anodyne kind, asking for close parliamentary involvement in the decision-making process prior to Article 50 being triggered. Being an opposition day motion, the government whip said, of course, this has got to be voted down, and then discovered, perhaps to their surprise, that there was no majority to vote that opposition motion down at all. So that they had to change tack, put an anodyne amendment, which in fact everybody in the House was able to agree, and we voted on that instead. So here you have, playing out in front of you, a huge, and I, I don't think I'm exaggerating the word, but really a huge contest about how the best interests of the country can be served in the circumstances that have arisen. It accepts the principle, and I don't think it's hardly anybody who doesn't, that Brexit has got to be implemented. Unless or until there's some major change in public opinion, and it's very difficult to see how you would gauge that, then it is inevitable that the government must give effect, because otherwise, Public trust in governments is going to be catastrophically eroded at a time further, at a time when it's already at a low ebb. On the other hand, as I say, giving effect to the public wish is very difficult. There are other players in all this. Labour are in a very strange place. Their leader is on another planet. He's not really interested in Brexit at all, except possibly as a lever to bang the Prime Minister over the head, and he's not very good at doing it anyway. But one of the consequences of that is that the Labour Parliamentary Party has, in a sense, an almost free reign to do what it thinks right. Hence the fact that one's beginning to see at Westminster some almost subconscious gathering of centre ground interests trying to perceive how you tackle this problem because they're not going to oppose triggering Article 50 if there's a vote. They don't want to get bogged down in the case which I think we're going to get the judgement tomorrow. That may put it all back because the government may lose that case but they may also win it. I'm, I'm, it's finely balanced as lawyers would say. But whichever it is, this is going to be the dynamics between this Labour group and the rest of Parliament is going to be quite interesting as well. And then we have the SNP. Um, 
who are disruptors, but they're very upset about what's happened. They've glossed over that 38% of uh, their own electorate actually voted to go, which is not insignificant. They talk of overwhelming majorities in Scotland in favour of the EU. That's not quite how I would characterise it. And actually, the other thing, and I hear I disagree very slightly with, um, with, with, with our first speaker, is that ironically, although it's absolutely right that the consequence of the referendum immediately was that a swathe of middle Scotland that had voted to keep the union and also believed in Europe was appalled and said, oh, you know, well, you know, this changes our view. If there was another referendum, quite frankly, we would go. Actually, four months down the road, I'm not sure that's the case. Because in a curious way, the one thing Brexit has done is to ruthlessly undermine the nationalist narrative of how Scotland can achieve independence light inside the comfortable duvet of an overarching European structure. And I think Nicola Sturgeon has very considerable difficulties over that issue at precisely a time when the focus north of the border, interestingly, is beginning to turn to the competence of her own government in domestic matters. So I'm not sure, although I've always worried that it would lead to the breakup of the union, I'm not sure actually that's going to happen. So there we have it. I, I'm conscious we want a bit of time to talk and I'm going to stop here. I hope I've sketched in as best I can what I think the current dynamics are. But of course all this is being played out against two factors over which in one way the government has little or no control. The first one is the economy and what the markets say about UK PLC. Now, somebody pointed out, it's all very well saying the FTSE is going up, but the national FTSE is the value of your currency. And the remorseless descent of our currency says a great deal about foreign confidence in the United Kingdom and will start to have, if it continues, profound economic impacts, which will also impact on policy, even if there are no other things that surround it at present. And the second one, uh, in addition to that, is what's happening on that continent where the frogs and wogs are located. Um, the truth is that the European Union is in crisis. And how that crisis is going to pan out is very difficult to tell. And it seems to me that also how that uh, crisis works in terms of... Um, uh, its influence on what the EU wants, the ability of the euro area to hold together, and how it might play out with what's taking place domestically is an absolute imponderable that I would defy any soothsayer uh, to be able to ascertain. And in all this, the UK government's interplay with its European partners, who are in fact, of course, as you'll appreciate, despite my previous uh, uh, picking up uh, the pejorative terms about them, absolutely essential to our long-term well-being, whether we are in or out of the European Union, is the one thing that we are going to have to confront over the next six months, because of course no deal can be obtained without their agreement, and they're entitled to feel quite irritated with us in view of what's happened. Thank you very much.